So she's going in, the, in this depressive period, and we can come back to that. Let's do pause briefly, though, on, on her reception, because it has puzzled a lot of people. And let me just give you a few of my own thoughts on it, and then we can sort of knock it back and forth a little bit. Because if nothing else, if you look at the actual impact that she's had on people's lives, and certainly the clarity and consistency and power of her thinking, it at first glance appears somewhat odd that professional philosophers didn't respond to her. I wouldn't surprise, not in a novel, no, 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 if you choose to express your philosophy in a novel, I can understand why that would stop a lot of professional philosophers. I was talking about public intellectuals in a somewhat different sense, but for, for, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, but nonetheless, people, there, there has been a consistent curiosity about, about how she was never particularly taken seriously by right. either of those groups. Right. Yes. Right. That's all. That's all I'm saying. I mean, it, and so uh, it, that's always been kind of a puzzle, certainly to her followers, and I think even to, well, you know, bystanders, sociologists looking at the movement. But there, there are a couple of you know points about that. Obviously, um, one certainly on just public intellectuals is that she was clearly swimming upstream in an age of collectivism and uh, socialism as sort of avant-garde and chic. Um, quite beyond, um, you know, anything that, that, that it merited. And for her to come in, and obviously coming out of uh, collectivist society herself and seeing the devastation it can cause is certainly one of the emotional drivers that, that That's she... That's right. Yeah. Philosophy nowadays ain't what it used to be. In other words, as you know, most academic philosophy is just trivial, arcane... Um, it's removed from all the actual concerns of human beings. Basically so. It has pretty much nothing to do with anything. And, and I understand how it got that way, but it doesn't excuse it. So a professional philosopher would, would look at something like Ion and say, you know, it was never the case that she was a Nietzschean. It was never the case that she was this. But there are sort of elements, if you will. Of you course. can find some of Nietzsche's ideas in Ion, the uh, attack I on agree. the herd mentality, for example. Oh, but yeah. she wasn't a Nietzschean. And you can find elements of Immanuel Kant in her, of the emphasis on autonomy and rationality being its own judge, for example. But she wasn't a Kantian. She sort of wasn't very fond of Kant. And you can sort of go down the line like that. A professional philosopher can isolate himself from Ion by simply pointing out that there's, oh, quote, nothing original. But I think that misses the point in many, many ways. And let me just give you my, my sort of overview on, on the type of philosopher that, that Ion was. To me, she was much closer to somebody like a Schopenhauer. And I'll tell you why. If you actually look at Schopenhauer's works, the same criticisms could be, and were, labeled at him as were labeled at Ion. Now, I'm not saying that he and, and Ion shared similar ideas. They, not, not, not too many similar ideas there. But their reception was similar. Um, in that people said, well, there's nothing really new or novel in Schopenhauer. And actually, there really isn't in terms of he made some interesting contributions to Immanuel Kant's notion of a priori and so on. He's a very bright boy. But his contribution was much different. He's still the number one selling philosopher in the German language. It was an entirely different. It was a capacity to move people. It was a capacity to take very important ideas, draw them out, contribute to them in, in some novel ways, but to actually sort of make a statement, a historical statement, be at the right place at the right time and really move countless people with these ideas. There's a passion about his ideas and his writing was just exquisite. So he 
personally didn't have the charisma that Ian did, so uh, he would never, you know, be part of um, an exhilarating or intoxicating human movement as, as Ian and you were. But nonetheless, I, I, I find it very interesting that the same kinds of criticisms were, were labeled. So you yeah, hear the same thing from professional philosophers that, you know, Ian wasn't necessarily original on this, that, or the other. I think it sort of misses the point. But it also points out just how pointless academic philosophers are. May I add just one sure. to what you're saying? Uh, I agree with what you're saying, and I would only add this. I think that a key to understanding what was good about her with her, in the context of what you are talking about now is that she was striving to present an integrated vision of man's life on earth and what its well-being required. Right. And what was very interesting was the way in which she related different philosophical issues in the service of that vision. Right. Now, that's exactly what modern philosophy doesn't like. Yeah, tell me about it. Well, you ought to know. Well, it's just, but it's a mess. It's a mess. But I, so let's, so we, you know, we sort of shake our heads at the poor professional philosophers, but the public intellectuals also, I mean, they swarmed down on her, and I think there it was it really again we can think of many reasons but i think you hit a real central one which was that collectivism was still you know it was radical chic it was leftist chic and boy she was almost a one person anti-collectivist force and it must have found her very threatening because she was a very popular personality she was a tv personality people love as you say she's just a charismatic bomb so to speak and it was sort of like iron in one pan and the collectivist, radical, chic, herd mentality in the other pan. And it was about an even match. Well, yes, and you're absolutely right. This has many ramifications, this issue that you've raised now, which we'll probably talk more about later. Sure. Uh, uh, but very, very briefly, most professional intellectuals were raised in a somewhat, or participated in a predominantly leftist or collectivist vision of the good society. Right. Parenthetically, this is one of the reasons, in my judgment, why there has been, while there's been a tremendous amount of scholarship about the Hitler's regime in Germany, there has been a minuscule comparable scholarship for the horrors of either uh, the Soviet Union yeah. or Communist China or even Cambodia. Yeah. And the point there is this, what all of these different countries in System 7 common is, they are all different schools advocating versions of socialism or tribalism or collectivism. And their major contribution to the human race was in the 20th century. Uh, we are now coming to understand they are responsible in the names of their socialist ideals for the torture and or murder of roughly 100 million human beings. So now look at the dilemma that puts you in. Yeah. If you're a professor at Harvard University who's had nothing but glowing things to say about the Soviet Union, yep. you've got a hell of a dilemma. <clears throat> From John Paul Sartre on, all of the all of the uh, existential leftists were in bed with that vision, and however idealistic it was, it was fundamentally misplaced. And uh, but nonetheless, that's the that's the stream you're swimming up. May I ask you this question? Yeah. If genuine idealism was their motivation. What do you think it would have taken for them to begin to question 
perhaps the most fundamental underlying ideal, namely that the individual belonged to the collective. How many, if 100 million deaths is not enough, how many would there have to be before somebody would say, hey, wait a minute, let well, us check our premises? Ex well, exactly. But what's required, of course, is, as you know, in these cases, is a clear and evident path from the premise to the result. And that's what they are, intellectuals are very good at not seeing the obvious when it comes to that. Yes. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons that Ayn was so threatening. Because, look, if she, was, if she was the same passionate voice, but what she was saying was wrong, they wouldn't, they'd ignore her. They well, hated that's, her. That's true. They hated her. They went out, and that, that tells you that she was stepping a little bit too close to home. She was stepping on some raw nerves. She was stepping on some exposed premises. And again, you don't have to defend everything Ian said to see that she was essentially onto an important truth in this regard. And I think that's why she was met with a, you know, they do protesteth too much. I mean, they just went bloody ballistic over this thing exactly. way out of proportion and that's because basically they were you know they were they were treading on thin ice and i don't find it necessary to you know deny all of their idealism i mean people can have some pretty idealistic I'm things not, get I'm pretty not, bent i'm not denying all of it either I'll, you know but i'm trying to make a point i hear you that I do think that intellectual conscientiousness at some point has to count for something. Well, I think it's just, you know, I remember what happened in the, in the 1950s when they were looking at smoking and lung cancer. <laughs> there were doctors on the back of Life magazine doing advertisements for Camel cigarettes. Because really? it, when the, the evidence was still, you know, quote, a little tenuous. And so, the, obviously, there were doctors that, that were going to appear and say, no, it's not harmful for you at all. And that's my fondest memories growing up are doctors smoking cigarettes on TV telling you how healthy they are. And that's that it, but sooner or later it became impossible to deny the fact that there is a causal linkage between smoking and lung cancer. And sooner or later you find out there's a causal linkage between herd mentality and collectivist barbarism. That wasn't necessarily clear at the beginning. And then when it w did become clear, it was to me... TV doctors smoking. It was this whole, and that's what so many of the public intellectuals were. They were, they were, they were philosophical doctors smoking and saying it didn't harm you. And but somewhere in the back of their eyes, you could see that even they were starting to doubt it. And I think that's why Ion completely infuriated them. I used to say to Ion, when she would sometimes be agitated over this, I say, "Look, Ion, you can't have it both ways. You can't, on the one hand, want to maintain." that you are a pioneer who is carving out new territory, and on the other hand, insist that any person with half a brain would have to agree with you. And <laughs> <laughs> she laugh and she'd say, you got me, you know. <laughs> I say, you know, either, either we are asking people something which is really hard to step outside of the context that they took in with their mother's milk for all practical purposes, yep, yep. and that has to be factored in to how you look at all this. One reason for saying that, incidentally, aside from the fact that it's true, many of the ideas that she propounded in the 50s and 60s, when Atlas Shrugged was still being argued about, seem much less shocking and far more palatable and are better understood by people today than they were for 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. Meaning, uh, in terms of a lot of the issue, we are, ever since Vietnam, we are much more suspicious of uh, authority, of what the state may or may not order us to do. Right. That there's been a lot of changes 
uh, with regard to authority, with regard to our view of the government, that uh, it's a different world. It's a different world, and on both sides of the street, you know, and, that, and I think that's what got everybody really looking at it carefully. I mean, certainly the American uh, uh, government, but it, it went all the way back to finding out that Stalin himself had starved 13 million Ukrainians to death, that it might have reached 80 million deaths, some total, um, counting the gulag, uh, from Hitler to Stalin to Pol Pot. I mean, it, it's the, the collectivist nightmare, often parading under idealist uh, images. That That's well, sort of one of the real scary the things we've learned from this century. Exactly. And exactly. Yeah, and so, so that, so. all of a sudden, though, now we know smoking causes lung cancer, and everybody, they don't... People don't get too crazy when you say smoking causes lung cancer now. They kind of go, yeah, I know, hard lesson, huh? So this is the environment, this is the world, and then it's 1961. I'm 31 years of age. She's depressed. She's depressed. My relationship with Barbara is really like a, a friend in a desperate, miserable situation, but not husband and wife. Yeah. And in it's the first night of the... New, basic principles of objectivism. I'm up on the platform. I begin to talk, and then my eyes fall on this beautiful blonde girl in the third row who is looking at me with a look of rapture on her face, and I'm like walking into a dream. Patricia. And um, she's 21 years of age, newly arrived from, from uh, Mount Shasta or, or Palo Alto, and... Uh, She's read Atlas Shrugged the Fountainhead, and she comes now to take this course. And uh, we'd have conversations. I had no idea where this was heading I w uh, either. Uh, I, I guess I don't sound very bright. I didn't know where I was heading, and I didn't know where this was heading. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, this yeah. sounded a little dense to myself. <laughs> in any event, in any event, um, you must realize this. Even though I'd had this double relationship. I was still a very, in certain ways, puritanical, faithful, monogamous, believing husband. I, I, you know, I really was committed to monogamy. I was like a metaphysical exception. I, <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Well, also, it's sort of an occupational um, hazard of the male human organism that we don't pick up the, quite as many emotional cues as the women do. So well, we kind of a little bit blinkered on some of these things. isn't altogether surprising. Yes, this, it's all true. But in any event, she assumed, you know, I'd introduced Barbara, and from my manner she concluded that I was a happily married man, and she told me this later afterwards, obviously. And so she decided, in effect, uh, I will have to remain in her mind like an abstraction of what she was in love with, but it's not going to be me. <laughs> later she was to meet and marry a very nice man who was also a student in my course, and we were invited to their wedding. And I and Ren and her husband were invited to their wedding, now picture me in the church, and on one side of me is Barbara, and the other side of me is, is Ian. Right. And walking down the aisle with her father is Patricia. <laughs> and in that moment, everything inside me starts screaming, I do not like this. And although I didn't know it until later, she was having the same experience in that moment that she's just about to make a colossal mistake. So I am really shook up. Afterwards, there's like a party at a restaurant, and uh, I keep going outside to breathe fresh air. I can't, you know, I feel like I'm losing my mind in there. Yeah. And uh, 
Patricia keeps looking through the crowd, where's Nathaniel, where's Nathaniel, where's Nathaniel, you know. And uh, off they go on their honeymoon. God. For three years, uh, I just tried to put all that aside and uh, get on with my life. But um, Were you still sort of in love? With Patricia? Yeah. I wouldn't have said it yet, no. Yeah. I, would, okay. I wouldn't have permitted myself the thought. Yeah, looking back on it, were you? I'm reluctant to say you're in love when you don't really know the person. Okay, that's fair enough. You but know, something, sure. something had gotten, some chime had gotten it wrong. Was in, there was an incredible, I want to pick my words, I intend the words I'm going to use. There was an incredible spiritual slash sexual attraction. Understood. It, there, there was something... To this day, I don't fully understand, but I know I want to use the word spiritual, not psychological. Well, and they talk about potential and actual energy. Maybe there was a, there's a potential and actual love, and, and y'all had a spark of real potential love. Yeah, here's what I think. Here's what I would think. I hope this comes across the way I mean it. She projected somebody who lived in an ecstatic state of consciousness. Yeah. I felt that I did. Yeah. And if I would say that was what we were recognizing each other and picked up off each other, and that's what drew us together. So we would talk during these years, you know, and kid around and everything. But uh, give you an idea how, how oblivious I was. They, they became friends with other friends of mine, and her, her husband's name was Larry. They came to a party. Now picture this. I and Rand is there with her husband. Frank, Barbara's there, et cetera. And Barbara... Patricia and Larry come in, and, and Patricia says something, gets talking, and she says, oh, Nathaniel Brandon is the second most rational man I know. <laughs> so I must have had a look at my face, and she, and she said, well, I don't know him well enough to judge. I, na I named my husband first because I know him and I live with him. <laughs> and then I don't know what look was on my face, but she began to laugh. She said, will you look at this look on his face? <laughs> He doesn't like this. He wants to be first with <laughs> any woman. Now, remember this. <laughs> this child of 21. I lived in a world where everybody, um, all my contemporaries, were somewhat afraid of me. You understand me? Oh, yeah. Nobody in my group, except Diana, which is different, would ever have made a statement of this kind to me. Yeah. And so when I made some flippant answer, instead of meeting her more head-on, she said, oh, my God. She said, I think Nathaniel Brandon lacks courage. Uh, I think it might have been in that moment that I fell in love. Uh, I went into the other room. I said, Barbara, I must tell you something hilarious. Can you believe it? Patricia just told me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good move. I have a feeling that anyone listening to this conversation will say, if I ever suspected that Nathaniel Brandon doesn't play with a full deck, surely this interview confirms it. And, and clearly he hasn't been playing with a full deck for quite some time. <laughs> oh, God. It's great to be alive. So, <laughs> so when did you, well, you and Patricia ended up together? We ended up after three years of torture. Uh, it came to a climax was I was out going somewhere one day. I met her. She was, by the way, she was earning her living as a model. She was raising money so she can go back to college. Right. And I met her on the street one day, and wherever she was, she always had a book with her. And so we got talking about whatever she was reading. I can't remember what it was now. 
and we were having great fun standing on Madison Avenue talking. And I said to her, if you ever want to come by my office for a visit and say hello, chat a bit, feel free to drop in. So uh, a week or two later, I think it was a week later, she came by uh, my office. And we had an incredible two- or three-hour conversation. And now I was really, now I was beginning to feel so smitten. Yeah. Uh, um, (laughs) You're in deep smit. I I can't, I can't... uh, I wrote about this in, in the memoir, My Years with Ayn Rand, and I, yep. if anybody's interested, they could read it there, but it, it was just... Um, and then you end up romantically and then, involved. And, then, and I, couldn't, I couldn't tell her about Ayn. That wasn't my secret to share. I know, but Ayn did find out. Oh, yeah, I mean, but tell I, I know, I mean, tell Patricia about my relationship oh, with Ayn. Oh, of course. Well, that was still officially secret. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, but Patricia had guessed it just by watching us together. Yeah. Which I later learned quite a few people had. Yeah, we were nowhere as clever at concealment yeah. as we imagined, <laughs> or as they say in Afghanistan, people are not stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, uh, eventually, Ian gets told that Nathaniel is in love with his 21-year-old model. All hell breaks loose. Yeah, uh, Ian f- feels devastated. She feels uh, like I'm a traitor to all of my professed values, I'm a hypocrite, I'm a liar, and she is going to erase me from the world professionally. You know, pause right there, though, and I know you know this, but can you imagine how devastating that would be to her? Obviously you can, but I mean, all of the things that we talked about that were in place that sort of acted to to keep you on that road were also in place to keep her on her road. Of course. I mean, if course. you were the embodiment of rational objectivist philosophy, then you couldn't but love her romantically. And if you didn't love her romantically, you couldn't be an objectivist. It just didn't compute. Well, no, she wouldn't say that. No, she wouldn't say. Just to correct you, she wouldn't say that any person who professed an admiration for her philosophy or agreement with it, quote should be in love with her. But she meant a man of my stature. And There's no way around it. That's no. I was very careful when I phrased it. If the epitome of her philosophy was being rational, right and had that admiration for Ion, then he should romantically be in love with Ion. You could read it off his premises. And if he didn't, the whole structure was threatened. I mean, that's certainly how emotionally how it must have hit her. And not and in addition to how it must have hit her just as, as a woman. I mean, obviously there's there are doubts about her own attractiveness as she's pushing, you know, in sixties and and she's still so she's very much now. Yeah, well, and she's she was very much in love woman. with you and, and also on every level, you know, physical, emotional, rational and spiritual, whether she would call it that or not, this was a kick in the in the teeth, you know. And I don't I mean, again, I don't have to tell you anything, but I, well, I was just sort of... Uh, in support of what you're saying, whenever I would think about telling her, and I would discuss this with Barbara, who I had told the truth to, we both felt this will kill Ian. I mean, what the hell was the right thing? I lost all sense of what is the right thing to do, because in this case, the objectivist precept was correct, and I was wrong, which is, tell the fucking truth. Yeah. Yeah. But I felt guilt. Yeah. I, I felt I knew this was going to be a catastrophe. Yeah. I knew that it was the end not just of Ian and me personally, but the end of the work I was doing. Yeah. And uh, we did close the Institute, and I moved to California with Patricia and began a new life. Yeah. And 
began the the reevaluation or the rethinking about what the uh, past 18 years of my life had been about because I've just covered with you now a span of 18 years of my life. Yep. Um, 1950, from 1950 to 1968. 1968, yep. when uh, I and then published the denunciation of me and Barbara, Barbara for taking my side, etc., in the Objectivist publication. We having had the foresight to get a complete mailing list of our subscribers, wrote and sent out our response, etc. And then the world divided into three sides. Those who stood with Ian against Brandon, those who stood with Brandon against Ian, those who said, it's not for us to have an opinion on this subject one way or the other, it's none of our business. Yeah. And uh, that's the way it played out. And uh, But what I'm sort of jumping over here was that after uh, Barbara had broken with Ian because she could see that uh, Ian was really hell-bent on destroying me. Yeah. Uh, she had arranged for me to, a, pub, a particular publisher was going to publish The Psychology of Self-Esteem. Right. It was almost finished. Ian was going to try to sabotage that, which she did. It was subsequently published elsewhere and it had a very good life, but she tried to prevent it. Yep. And uh, doing things that Barbara thought were morally outrageous and that threw her over into my camp, as it were. Yeah. So I was keenly aware of what you're saying on how many different levels I was going to be wounding her. And I was going to be wounding her philosophically, and I was going to be wounding her as a woman. Yeah. And I knew that. Yeah. And it was also, Nathaniel, if I could briefly interrupt it, it also was, I mean, some people might think that if, if you and Barbara are saying, look, if you tell I and this, it will kill her, that it's sort of somehow overblowing or, or being narcissistic in the bad sense. And I, I think that's a misreading of it. I think that it, in a sense, well, it almost did kill her. But in part, of course, because what you two had together, but in part, it was also the elaborate framework that she had built around the rational objectivist worldview that amplified the effects enormously. Yes. Because again, a, it wasn't just a man leaving a woman; it was a threat to the entire objectivist framework. It just—it it, it was almost inconceivable that this kind of thing could happen, given her yes. premises. Although I would have denied this in the years early of this period, you know, earlier in my life, it is very clear to me, and I wrote about it in the memoir and elsewhere that. There was an unacknowledged or unadmitted bias against emotions right. in that world. And, of course, whenever that happens, in the end, it's emotions that are your undoing. All the disowned feelings that Rand and or I brushed under the floor of the subconscious right. came out in the worst possible way right. because we didn't allow them to come out in the normal, healthy way. Right. Could I amend that? Would you agree with this, that it wasn't so much emotions that were denied as emotions that didn't follow your rational view? In other words, if you got very excited about Ian's book, that's allowed. That's rational. But if there yes, were emotions there were em that... Emotions that didn't fit my right. intellectual commitments. That's right. That's right. I'm sorry. Thank you for the clarification. You got it. Yeah, that's right. Emotions that didn't fit yeah. my, my commitments intellectually. Yeah. And, of course, your emotions with Patricia did not fit that commitment, and therefore the walls came tumbling down. And, yes, and uh, so that's really uh, the end of Act One, as it were. It, it uh, is indeed. It's, it's not the end of the Ayn Rand story, strangely enough nor am I suggesting I stop at this moment, but I'm just saying that... Exactly. No, it goes on, um, and 
Devers had connections with Ion, for example. That is such a dramatic story. I mean, yeah. <laughs> incredible. Well, the Devers, the whole Devers story is incredible. Well, all of them. I swear to God, Nathaniel, you are just a, yeah, oh, you're just a, you're several movies of the week in one grand <laughs> epics all rolled into one. It's just unbelievable. But but let's just let's just pause briefly and we're we're gonna you know because we're circling back through these Ion will come in and out of the story all, all the way up obviously in, in, until um, well actually all the way up to today but certainly until her death in 1982 but here it is now it's 1968 69 um, and there's a parting of the ways so to speak and obviously it's has to be very, very difficult on you. But you're also going through what I think is, in some ways, you know, one of the most mature periods of your own thinking, and because it was both working with um, some of the rational objectivist tenets, but even in the psychology of self-esteem, you had arrived at a lot of those ideas independently of Ion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, the two concepts of efficacy and self-worth, for example, this is completely independently um, arrived at by, well, by it's, you. It's, I would think more, I mean, Ian used to say, and unfortunately I didn't take her seriously enough, she, she would say to me, I don't really know very much, or I know nothing about psychology. I'm going to leave that to you, Nathaniel. Right. And, of course, later when we get to areas of my disagreements, the major area of my disagreement, directly or indirectly, will fall within the the domain of psychology. Yeah, I, I, I have agree. I have disagreements outside that, but yeah. the greatest number of uh, right. issues, even start, even they may have just started out as psychological issues. Then later on, I saw there's also wider philosophical ramifications. Right. right. So, so here it is. It's it's you're, you're it's 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 you're entering the 1970s, and like I say, I think one of the real mature, um, strong periods of of your own work, certainly in not solely, but, but particularly strongly in, in the field of psychology. And, but at the same time, it's set in both the positive things that you had taken from the previous 20 years and that you had learned, but it also must be set in a context of, you know, something was a little bit off with, with, with that general worldview. As you say, part of it is just too rational in the sense that things that don't fit with the rationally sanctioned view then those tend to get shoved under the carpet. And so it, you're allowed to have almost anything, and you can have strong emotions and so on, but they do have to fit within your intellectual commitments, and everything that doesn't is kind of screened out. It doesn't really go away, but is sort of put under the rug or over the rug, however you want to look at it, and causes problems. And so looking back on it, how would you sort of, you know, give a Reader's Digest overview of, of what some of the, criticism that you started to have about that general approach? Well, let me come into it from this angle. I don't know if you remember who Chaim Gannat was, the late, great child psychologist who, who wrote brilliant, I still regard them as the best books ever written on how to raise psychologically healthy children. He and I became friends. He died when he was young, only 52. Yeah. And I met him a few years earlier at an APA convention. Yeah. And we, we became friends. And he was out in California lecturing, and I was walking with him to the place where he was going to give his lecture. I don't know how we got into it, but he happened to make the remark that all of the major mistakes in his life that he'd made, he made when he was neglecting something he was feeling. Ah. Uh. And I stopped dead because I realized I could have made the same statement. Wow. 
and that really started me or galvanized me into thinking much more deeply yeah. about the relationship of reason and emotion. What year was that? 1970. Okay, so that's two, that's two years after you, but so you really are in a period of rethinking the yeah, whole... Yeah, I left there October 68, yeah. so it's like a year and two months. Yeah. Anyway, so that so I began to think about a lot about what were the danger signals to which I had made myself oblivious. And that got me into thinking far more deeply about emotions, not that they are suddenly purveyors of absolute truth. They have to be evaluated in a a context integrated with other considerations, but they are potentially invaluable sources of information about what's happening in oneself. And that started me down the road, and that culminated in a book which I really wrote in part to make issues clearer to myself, but in part for my old students to undo any harm that I had done in terms of my own unintentional encouragement of uh-huh. emotional repression. So I wrote a book called The Disowned Self. Yeah. And, the, and that was really like a written in, I didn't raise the issue of objectivism in the book, but it was really written for my students. It was like an act of contrition or undoing, trying to, whatever harm I might have caused by participating in in a in a really inappropriate perspective on the relationship of reason and emotion. Right. It's a uh, terrific book, too. Still is. Well, thank you. Uh, it, it was, I guess all of my books, in one respect or another, are my effort to make something a little clearer to myself. But I, my, my conscious intention was to offer this to my students. I think that's why most of the main ones from the psychology self-esteem on forward still have enduring value. Yeah, at which yeah, I'm sort of, yeah, I'm sort of... Uh, stunned uh, and you know what's very interesting for many people relatively speaking I've, al- I've always striven to, str- to write in the st- a literary style which is accessible to the educated layman you know yep. I've do- I try to avoid sounding like a psychologist yep. I like you know the way Eric Fromm or Karen Horn and I wrote in terms of if you're an educated person yep. you don't have to have a university degree to understand this okay yep. But the interesting thing was the book, which in some ways is more technical than my later books, The Psychology of Self-Esteem, remains for many of my readers their favorite book. Yeah, no. And that in, it intrigues me because that kind of, it's, it's in structure and its way of thinking, the philosophy that's in, underneath the psychology is spelled out very explicitly, I guess. And so it kind of is the structure that even later, a lot of the things I would say differently, has a certain validity. I think that's not uncommon. I know a lot of writers from Alan Watts to yourself, frankly to myself, that some of their early books are still some of their most popular and best-selling ones. For me, it's no boundary. And I think the reason is that, even though I would also say some things differently about no boundary, I think the truths that we latch on to are enduring truths. And the, they're expressed at a time when we're just getting the hang of it ourselves, and therefore, it really speaks to people who are just getting the hang of it themselves, too. And it's some That's of the right. things that we sort of take for granted now. We didn't take for granted in the earlier books, and therefore we had to walk people through it in a way that we wouldn't even think of walking them through it today, perhaps. You're, because ab- it's you're so obvious. absolutely right. And, and No Boundaries is the perfect example of, yes. yes I think that's yes. exactly right. And, and for that reason, I, and so I'm really glad that that happens. And that's why I'm very reluctant to go back and tinker with a lot of those things. Because I'm not sure we know what we're tinkering with. 
that was I was asked if I wanted to for the new new publication that came out of the 32nd anniversary edition of the Psychology of Self Esteem. When I was asked, did I want to edit it and update it? And I was afraid to. Yeah. No, I, I very wise well, I judgment. I understand perfectly what you've just said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you started. So this was 1970, and, this, and the gentleman said everything that he every time he'd gotten in trouble is when he had not paid no, attention to something. He said the times he thought of the times in his life where he made the wrong choice. He, he couldn't think of an exception. He was always ignoring something important that he was feeling. Right. And the point was not that you then follow your feelings blindly, but that you do give your feelings a legitimate voice, at the, a place at the table yeah. for the discussion. Yeah. In any event. Um, Sometime in the 1970s, uh, this is jumping ahead a bit, just to entertain you personally. <laughs> Sometime in the 1970s, I was reassessing everything and rethinking everything. So one of the issues I came up against was the whole subject of mysticism. Yeah. And I had a moment of illumination, which was the following. I don't really know anything about mysticism. <laughs> uh... I don't know, I don't think that I had read anything on that subject, but yeah. I know I am really quite ignorant. And if I'm taking a philosophical position on the subject of mysticism, I think the first step should be for me to find out what it is. <laughs> so that started me reading. Okay? Yeah. And the years went by, and I was still in the very early stages of my explorations. That really belongs in part three. But <laughs> in the early 1980s, I wrote a book, and in it, I had a chapter, Beyond Self-Esteem. The book was called Honoring the Self, and the last chapter was called Self-Esteem and Beyond, or something like that. Right. And I decided that I wanted to look at the whole issue of transpersonal psychology, as it was then called. Right. But I wanted to be really, really certain that I understood exactly what it was I was going to, in some cases, agree with, but in other cases, disagree with. So I began asking around, who is the most reliable non-fluffy person <laughs> who can really correct me if I'm on the wrong track or who can advise me what's what about transpersonal psychology. And the unanimous voice that came back to me was, find Ken Wilbur. <laughs> Ken Wilbur is the man. And that is how it all began. We met in uh, your hotel room at the Four Seasons, was it? In San, San Francisco, I think yeah. it was. And I asked you when this... Would, would you read the chapter if anything in it is wrong, or the, you know factually, you know? And you were very helpful. You even were generous enough to give a nice quote to my publisher for the book. But that was the beginning of my getting interested about that dimension of experience. Yeah, and we'll come back to that because yeah, it's it's been it's a it's been a wild and fun sort of dialectic that we've had together. And again, I say that one of the main things like, we've just always enjoyed hanging out with each other and. And it's there's just a certain spark that is really fun to share with you, and and we I I remember that meeting in the hotel room that was oh, like 1983. I, I remember this with great exhilaration. I've I've I totally find you the most intellectually stem, stimulating, challenging, fun person to talk with. It's great. It's great. I'm serious. I love you. Oh, I did, I'm <laughs> I with really you all the do. way. I admire you enormously. I think you're very very clever. I think you're very hilariously funny. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's all there is to that. There it is. So this is, that was, we met in, I believe, 1983. That's right. Right, because I was Absolutely staying with Roger correct. and Francis. 
in Tiburon. And That's but right. this is we're back now to 1970, and this is you're giving kind of the end point of your expansion beyond, you know, I would say transcend and include the rational objectives. In yes. other words, you really didn't deny the important aspects of it. There's some damned important aspects of it, no, but you were finding some... things that didn't get included in it, and you were expanding exactly. your own Exactly, and I'll have much more to say about that in part two and part three. Exactly, exactly. But I couldn't resist the temptation to just run a decade or so ahead. Yeah, so you're 1970 now, and, and sort of take us back to when you would write, for example, um, you know, the disowned self and some of the stuff that you're starting to realize that you had, in fact, disowned back then. That's right. Yeah. And so that there was two things happening inseparably. One was rethinking a philosophy to which I committed myself, but also as deep as I could go, self-examination. Yeah. Why, what had permitted me to make the mistakes I made? And, uh, wow. And so, it, in fact, in, the two were very closely linked, the self-examination and the philosophical examination. Sure. And for obvious reasons. And, um... That can't have been an easy period. Well, it was hard because of several things. You must realize something going back a bit I began a thought but I got distracted and I forgot it going back to when everything exploded in New York and I knew that I was being vilified and lied about in incredible ways uh, and I was sort of only thinking Patricia and I will go leave town we're going to California starting your life to hell with all this stuff and Barbara said Nathaniel you've got to fight back you've got to get it through your head that I and once you did yeah and for me, that was a trauma to get it that, that notwithstanding everything that had happened, I was slow to realize the seriousness of her, the position which she had fallen right. into or stepped into. Right. So, plus but she, of course, viewed as self-defense, didn't she? Yes, plus the fact that my best and my closest friends, of course, uh, in my circle, all sided, of course, with... Uh, now, these were people who had been professing loved, worship, yeah. I'd saved their life, I gave them their future. I mean, right. I, I lived in a sea where I was treated like a demigod, but more importantly, where these people were always talking about what they learned from me, what they gained from me, what a life I'd helped them, blah, blah, blah. And the fact that once the explosion happened, they wouldn't even talk to me because I knew why. They were afraid, suppose I reached them, and they began to feel moved, and maybe they weren't prepared to take Ian's totally gospel truth. What problems would that create? Wow. So there was a lot of warfare going on. I eventually I had to start answering accusations and dealing with that stuff. And uh, it revolted me. And uh, it just was never my view of what life is about. Right. So it was very, very hard. And also, given, given the force that Ion was, you can imagine the force she brought to bear down upon your proposed death. But you see, yes... I knew, in her naivete, she thought that if she sends out to her, our people, the mailing list, you know, that we have now, etc., an annunciation of Nathaniel Brandon, that's all there will be to it. Nathaniel yeah. Brandon will be persona non grata within the whole objectivist movement, and he'll have to begin his life career all over again, which is so naive of hers because it implied that the only reason why people liked or respected me was because she told them to. Well, of course, there was that category, but it was a minority. Uh, when I moved to California, <laughs> I was almost penniless. 
but I had my complete mailing list. Yeah. So I did a mailing of anybody who lived within say, 50 miles of here of Los Angeles that was opening an office practice in psychotherapy, and within three months I had a full calendar. Right. And at that time, these were all people from the objectivist world. Right. Uh, uh, which I didn't surprise me in the slightest, but I was stuck by the foolishness that she could actually have believed that that was going to be the end of the story. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Right. So it's uh, your 1970s. You're slowly recovering from all of this, so to speak, getting your feet back on the ground. And this gentleman triggers a whole, obviously it didn't happen just from that sentence, but it, that was a catalyzing moment of clarifying what you had disowned in terms of your own disowned self. Exactly. And then I began, I wanted to experience some of the newer psychotherapy because I was at that time very much in the kind of a cognitive orientation. And I wanted to learn more about the experiential psychotherapy, so I began studying with the neo-Reikian people, with Gestalt people. Right. And so, of course, that helped me to go deeper also in another way into coming to think of the whole body as my brain. Right. If I'm being clear in that. Right. And, and to have a whole other understanding of uh, the complexities of the whole mind-body-spirit-body connection. Right. And, and uh, even your pre and in that light, even your previous espousal of, quote, biocentric values were, was, was curiously abstract. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's true. Yeah. Well, that's true. What really also helped along the whole process, I was earning my living doing psychotherapy. And to earn your living doing psychotherapy, you have to be able to deliver positive results for the people who come to you. Yeah. So I now had to test my, certain of my beliefs in the therapeutic encounter. Yeah. And pay attention to what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. So that became another source of relevant input for me. And you didn't really have that kind of practice in the, the previous no, two No, I had a purely philosophical practice disguised as a psychological practice. Yeah, exactly. So nothing nothing gets you straighter faster than watching your clients respond or not respond to what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, in a therapeutic setting. Uh, like you say, you have to produce results, or... Exactly. And uh, you learn very quickly that nobody was ever led to virtue by being told he was rotten. Ah. Uh, you know? Hard lesson. Uh, and uh, so that gets you off. That you, you realized, you start thinking in terms of what is the purpose of this communication. Right. If well, as they, just, as they say in Afghanistan, you can attract more flies with sugar than vinegar. Yes, that's, just, that's exactly the kind of easy cliche you'd expect from somebody who's a native of Afghanistan. Coming from you is a little disappointing. Uh, what, I'm trying, 